Hello and welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you're doing wonderful, walking in the presence of the Holy Spirit at all times, living a life in its fullness in love and peace of Jesus. So I pray that you're doing amazing. I miss you guys. I hope that you're doing well. It is episode 26 of series 18 on salvation today. And just to be super creative, the title of this is The Father Did Not abandon or pour out his wrath on Jesus. So it's a mystery on what we're talking about today. But uh, let's talk about really quick on where we've been in this series. In this series, today being episode 26 of the series on salvation, we've talked about the gospel. We talked about what God is doing on a cross. We talked about what Jesus came to do in his restoring right order and right relationship. The personal invitation of coming and tasting and seeing the goodness of God. We talked about grace. We talked about uh, faith and saving faith. We talked about being saved and judged by loved. We talked about our conscience and being accused or excused by it. We've talked about heaven. We talked about hell, purgatory. We talked about the question, are you saved? We talked about free will, predestination, the sovereignty of God. We talked about sin, which is the slavery of humanity. We've talked about penance and mortification. We talked about indulgences. We talked about suffering. We talked about the uh, our adversary, the devil. We talked about our advocate, the Holy Spirit. And we talked about uh, last episode, which really was a primer for this episode that we're talking about today. The episode 25, the, the very last episode was God's work and super, super abundant love is entirely for you. God needs nothing. <laughs> or not, we're not talking about God anymore. God needs nothing every single act of the blessed trinity father son holy spirit uh is entirely for us entirely for you and uh that was a great primer is an hour-long episode my goodness i talk a lot but it was an hour-long episode about god needs nothing for us and it's super abundant everything that he's done is for us and that really was a primer because to this episode because it is also a foundational aspect of understanding who God is, the Trinity, uh, humanity, salvation, and all of those things. And when we get those things wrong, we end up with horrible and <laughs> very sad. Like this is one that like hurts my heart. This heresy here that the Father either abandoned or poured out His wrath on Jesus. This is it's really sad. And um, so today we're going to be having an entire episode dedicated on it. So we're going to be talking about, um, briefly we'll talk about kind of the, just the layout of the issues that it, that this um, comes from or uh, really causes. We're going to talk briefly about the Catholic view, and then we're going to dive into the scriptures that are typically presented as, hey, this is where the Father abandoned Jesus, or this is clearly saying uh, that the that Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. Um and, and so we're going to talk about those. So we're going to kind of be uh, looking at those and then um, talking about them and responding to them. And then we're also going to be talking about it in a positive light, meaning that there's positive evidence that the Father did not do this uh, to Jesus. And so um, we're going to be talking about what our suffering is in Jesus. And then also, and we've had entire episodes on it, so it's going to be very brief. But And then we're going to be talking about the Father being with Jesus, and then we're going to be talking about the Father always with us because we are in Jesus. That's the good news. Praise you, Jesus. He brings us into the love of God. So anyhow, so let's start. So the Father did not abandon or pour out his wrath on Jesus. So first and foremost, there are Christians in the, uh, in the last 500 years that have come up with this theory of this um, penal substitution, meaning that Jesus 
in our and he took our place and was punished by God for our sins. Was punished by God for our sins, and so uh, this comes in uh, typically two different ways. One is that the father abandoned Jesus at the cross, like he he was it was so bad that the father had to turn his turn his back and turn away from his son suffering like that. Um, and then the second one is that uh, that the father seeing all the sins he saw mine and your sin he saw me on that he saw us on that cross but he but instead of pouring pouring out his wrath on us he poured out his wrath on jesus and so now jesus took our punishment and now we get to uh step into everything that he has because he took on our punishment from the father and so this is typically the 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 views that are that are sometimes believed in and not all non-catholic or non-orthodox uh christians believe in this but this is a pretty widely held um view and it's actually extremely sad because it has very damaging effects on people's view of god the father and uh the trinity and everything so the issues this typically is a very 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 huge false view of the trinity the false view of the Father in the Trinity, the false view of humanity, like God's plan for us, false view of sin and the penalty for it, false view of justice. It's a false view of Jesus and the incarnation, and it's a false view of our redemption and God's plan for us and therefore salvation in general. So, and I'll just say this, it doesn't always lead to that, but this but this has and typically does lead to the false beliefs that you can never lose your salvation or everybody's going to be saved or if you just have faith, you will live healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. We talked about each one of those uh, issues in the past in their fuller uh, uh, context in different episodes. Um, and also this makes God very unjust, unloving, and an animal with certain passions that need to be fed. Um, I heard, uh, and I respect this pastor a lot, um, very blessed by his ministry and his boldness and everything for the kingdom, but uh, I even heard him say one time that, like, he was explaining about how God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus and how now God has been has been in a good mood, has been in a good mood ever since then. Like, this is, this is one of the many issues, is that, like, it turns God into a monster that needs something. <laughs> that the father he was so mad he was so mad and now he poured out his wrath on jesus and now he's just like spent like ah oh, now i can now i can love people <laughs> like that is just so sad he literally said this in a thousands of hundreds or thousands of uh catholics explaining that god the father didn't pour out his wrath on our on on jesus but he poured out his wrath on on our sins that are on jesus and now he's in this great mood that is so sad um and uh, so just to kind of retrace some of the things that I just said. So false view of the Trinity. This, this is God the Father pouring out his wrath on God the Son. And that is a metaphysical impossibility because God can't punish God. That is already unjust. Um, and it's a false view of the Father. People, uh, there, was a, there was a Christian artist who grew up, um, I believe, Baptist or fundamentalist and believed in this type of atonement and was she was legitimately scared of the father and she looked at that like Jesus saved her from the father <laughs> not saved her to become one with the father but saved her from the father because the father hates her that's that was her view and so and it's also a false view of humanity like God created us he loved us and we are broken fallen and we are and it's also a false view of the, of sin and the penalty for it because sin is it brings us away from God 
because it is a fallen we, we are fallen and we've come under we've sold ourselves into the dominion of darkness and of satan this is when we talk about sin and death that's satan's work not god's god entered into to destroy the, the works of the devil he entered fully into our sin and 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 a death like ours in our humanity that god has uh taken on in his in the incarnation in order to destroy the works of the devil because God did not create death and he does not delight in the destruction of the living. And he's always wooing us. In the Old Testament, it's so beautiful how God calls us to himself and he calls us, calls Israel like it's his bride and they're his children. And he's calling us to live in the fullness of life that he has for us. Um, and also it's a false view of sin because of all those things, but also the penalty for it because we talked about hell. The, sin, the, the, the penalty for sin is eternal separation from the eternal God who is perfect goodness, perfect truth, perfect love. And so therefore, Jesus's punishment would have to be eternal separation, <laughs> but it's not. Jesus did not experience eternal hell, eternal separation, eternal, um, yeah, eternal separation from God willingly. <laughs> that is the penalty for sin. And we have to, we, ha we willingly choose that. God does not choose that. We talked about that as well in our topics of hell and free will and all of the stuff. So I'm not going to get into too much of it. But it's also a very, very false view of justice. Like God had to pour out his wrath in order to have justice for sin. But to inflict punishment on an innocent party so that the guilty party can be just like let off the hook is not justice at all. And even when we talk about uh, hell, when we talked about in our episode as, as well, hell is perfectly just because people have freely chosen to uh to to uh, separate themselves from god they do not want to be with god and they knowingly rejected uh truth or any grace that has been given to them and given to them in their lives and god is eternal so that breakage of an eternal bond with god and eternal bond with each other ends up with this eternal separation which god does not want and that's fully expressed and, and, and throughout scripture about God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and that Jesus came to save every single person and God does not delight that he would lose even one of these little ones. <laughs> and so God's heart is to save every single person from this broken human nature that we have, which is sold under the power of slavery to sin and death, which is the dominion of Satan, not the dominion of God. And so with all that, what is the brief Catholic view? The brief, the brief Catholic view is that Jesus, out of his super abundant love for us, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the second person of Blessed Trinity, took on our human flesh to enter into fully our human experience, took on our sin and death, meaning that he took on the curse of sin and death, and through his super abundant love, became a sin offering to God the Father out of love and God the Father uh, outpouring that love as well upon his children that we would enter into fully into Jesus. And so, and it's this super abundant love that saves us. He redeems us. He re, uh, The reparation that he gives us, the atonement to make us one, God, the eternal God becoming the becoming humanity so that humanity can be connected to the eternal God and satisfaction. And it's this satisfaction for sin because his love outweighs our sin. And so that love that took on human flesh and his love poured out for us is 
super abundant, meaning that it's eternal love in our human flesh, in our brokenness, in sin and death, and is more powerful and more, and it's, it's, I mean, it's eternally greater than our sin. And so, and it's, we, we, the church referred to it, refers to this as vicarious atonement, meaning vicarious means to experience feelings or emotions or something else for another person or with another person. And so, Jesus vicariously atones. He makes one with uh, he makes one um, humanity and God. He reunites in this vicarious atonement by taking on his, this the, our human body and entering fully into uh, sin and death and taking it upon himself, but not in uh, God the Father pouring out his wrath on us, but we our de- our sin, our death has uh, put Jesus there. He came to fight, to wage war against the works of the devil. So he took on human flesh, which was in the image of God, because he, Satan knows that he can't battle with God. So he battles with his creatures, his creatures that he loves. And so Jesus takes on that creaturely form, and he was found in human form, Scripture talks about. And then he destroyed the works of the devil by taking on that sin and death, and he's dismantled its power. And so now sin has no more dominion over us by the power of Jesus death has no more last say it's become a gateway to eternal life into the very uh, union that god has for us and that's the the whole point of the last episode as well is that god doesn't need anything god does not need anything or we would not be talking about the eternal creator who is perfect love perfect goodness perfect truth perfect beauty who needs nothing totally happy on his own doesn't need anything doesn't need anything from you and and yet he loves us so much that he would take on our human flesh and uh raise it to glory from fallen from created to fallen to risen to glory through jesus's redemption his reparation his atonement and satisfaction for us so the trinity's great love for us that is super abundant it's eternal satisfaction for our sins because it's eternal love that entered into the likeness of human flesh and destroyed the works of the devil of sin and death by entering into our sin and death in our humanity. So now let's get into a little bit of the actual arguments. The, we'll start off first with the father abandoning Jesus. So at the cross, one of Jesus's, uh, se- he has seven last words or phrases or statements. And one of those last seven words is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so people are like, well, Jesus himself said that. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And therefore, God forsake him or abandon him or turned his back. And some, you'll even hear of like, that it was so bad that God the Father turned his back. Like, that just, I mean, God, <laughs> the God, nothing's too great for God. Um, or we're not talking about God again. And if the second person of the Blessed Trinity entered into it, I'm sure the first person of the Blessed Trinity, the third person of the Blessed Trinity are all there. So then, what could Jesus be meaning by, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is actually the very beginning of Psalm 22. And the Psalms were quoted every single day through uh, Jewish practice and in the synagogues and the temples. And to say the very beginning of a Psalm would be to quote the entire thing. And so it would be like starting a song that we know and everybody knows the words to it. 
this is how it was in Jewish practice. If you start the beginning of a psalm, everybody will know the fullness of it. And so Psalm 22 is really beautiful and powerful. It starts out with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it appears as if uh, somebody's been forsaken, and yet it goes on to explain. It goes on that this person would be totally vindicated by God, and it was he was not abandoned. And actually, in through this, the entire Gentile people and the Jews would become and worship the one true God. And so Jesus here is clearly saying that the God that God did not abandon him, and this is actually going to end up in victory and in glory, and. Uh, it's going to end up with the salvation of the entire human race by, as he said, he's going to be raised up and draw all men to himself. And those would be Jews and Gentiles alike coming to know the one true God. And so now I'm going to read Psalm 22. And this is a Psalm of David. So King David uh, would have wrote this in his beautiful prayers. And so uh, it, it's a decent size. So it'll take a couple minutes, but we're going to read it. It's going to be beautiful. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To to you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are, you are he who took me from the womb. You keep kept me safe upon my mother's breasts. Upon you was I cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Yes, dogs round about me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O help me, O my help, hasten to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you sons of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you sons of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. The Lord who seek him, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall wor worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Yes, to him shall all the proud of the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and he who cannot keep himself alive. Pro posterity shall serve him. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation, and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, that he has wrought it. 
Psalm 22, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so, Psalm 22, it's so beautiful. It starts out with uh, appearing to be afflicted, and yet his trust is totally in God, and he's saying that everybody, he looks to be uh, abandoned or forsaken because all of his enemies are around him. All these people are the ones who scorn him. All the pe people mock him and despise him. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? And yet, he's saying that, God, you are the one who actually delivers the people from their enemies. You've done it before. You're going to do it again. And then it's actually very beautiful. It talks about how uh, they've pierced my hands and feet and he can count all his bones and they're casting lots. All those are things of, that are fulfilled at that crucifixion scene of Jesus. And then, uh, but you, O oh Lord, are not far off and, or be not far off. And, and he comes to deliver and that he's going to sing of his praises and that ultimately everybody, um, and he does not, despise or he does not turn aside from the affliction of the afflicted but he enters into it and that the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied and that they will praise uh, the true God forever and all the ends of the earth will come and turn to the Lord and they will worship him and so and then it will be proclaiming his deliverance and so with Psalm 22 Jesus my God my God why have you forsaken me he quotes this entire psalm and shows that God does not forsake him, even though his enemies and in the power of darkness in that time where he had the entire human sin and death upon himself, having the most severe, uh, severe pain that we could ever imagine, the severe suffering that he entered into, we could not even fathom. And he enters into that fully. He looks like he's uh, forsaken, and yet he's only been forsaken and mocked at and jeered at by his enemies, which are uh, really our, our sins. And so we're there mocking him. And yet it's God the Father who is with him. And it's going to be in this moment that God is going to draw all men to himself and will be the means of deliverance, salvation, and redemption and the fullness of life in the one true God and in the person of Jesus. So that was about the father abandoning Jesus. The answer is no, he did not. <laughs> now let's move to the father's wrath being poured out on Jesus. And there's uh, three verses that we're going to, or three scriptures that we're going to be looking at. One is Isaiah 53, 3 through 12. And then this is the suffering servant. We're going to also look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That is the, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Romans uh, 8, 3 is that for for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned he condemned sin in the flesh. And so these are typically the verses that are typically used as saying, like, see, here God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus or afflicted him or uh, is the one that punished him. And so Isaiah, we'll go to first Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12. And this is about the Lord's suffering servant. Starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one, as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed. Like we, And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the, the iniquity of, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, and so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgressors. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that is Isaiah 53, and it's uh, a few of those verses are even quoted in the New Testament, such as, um, by his stripes we are healed. And so uh, there are uh, verses in here that are taken out and said, see, this is God the Father inflicting punishment on God the Son. Such as when it says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. And so this entire thing is actually read uh, a lot, especially during this Lenten uh, season, and it's typically done for Stations of the Cross um, within that uh, beautiful um, contemplation of Jesus' passion for us in the Catholic Church. Why? Because this is, this is a prophecy about Jesus taking on the, the suffering, the wounds, the uh, sin, the iniquity all of, for, from all of us. And this was the plan of God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. God sent his Son into the world and to save the world. And so he, Jesus did enter into fully into our pain and our suffering and our humanity of sin and death. And therefore, we can say amen to literally all of this. But that doesn't need to turn into that God the Father poured out his wrath or punished Jesus. No, Jesus, in his love for us, entered into fully into our suffering. God the Father sent his Son and entered into fully into our suffering and out of great love for us so that by his wounds, God, in his, he took on uh, the incarnation, went to the cross and died for us. He entered into fully into our wounds and by his stripes we are healed. And so it's by this great humility of God that we become glorified in him. Jesus entered into everything for us. And so Jesus did take our place, but not in the uh, penal or the penalty uh, sense, like God's wrath. So the sacrifice of Jesus was a gift of love to the Father and for us to participate in. And so we are in this broken humanity, in this suffering state, and yet as uh, it says in John that the high priest even prophesied that this one man must die for for all of Israel, right? And and so and for will die for all the people. And so the Lord in His suffering participates in our suffering so that we can participate in His divinity and His glory, and uh, He'll save us from that. So, Amen, Amen.
Jesus, you are the Lord's suffering servant. You are the one who enters into fully. You are the one that took on our wounds, took on our sins, took on our iniquity, took on every single thing that we had. But God the Father was there with you. Amen. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it sounds like Jesus became sin. Like he, he became sin, even though he knew no sin. And that right there, yes, amen. Jesus became sin because he took on all of our sin, and but he did not sin, right? So that sin, that punishment for sin is eternal separation from God. So in that sense, he did not take on um, the penalty due to sin, but he took on our sin and his love is more is greater than our sin. And when it says that he became sin, it's actually he became a sin offering. So it's the same phrase that is used uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says that he became sin. It's a sin offering that was offered in the Old Testament. It was an offering for reparation of sins. And so, and this is the same Greek word that is used in Hebrews uh, 10 verse 6. Hebrews 10, uh, 5 through 9 is quoting Psalm 40, 6 through 8. And right in uh, verse 5 of Hebrews 10, again, quoting Psalm 40, says that a body you prepared for me. And we talked about that as the incarnation, uh, the uh, Jesus took on our human flesh. And then in verse 6, it says that in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And so that same Greek word is used for sin offering, which is an offering for sin in the Old Testament. I'm going to try to uh, get the link to the podcast I listened to with Fulton Sheen's talks. They're fire. They're like 20 to 30 minutes long, typically. And there's two parts uh, that I'm going to try to leave a, a link to. One episode is called The Humanity of Christ. And at the 23-minute 20, mark, there's about four minutes left in it. He has this beautiful analogy of Christ becoming sin. And it's very powerful. And then there's a second episode called The Law of Love. And at the 15-minute mark-ish, there's like nine minutes left. There's another example of the grieving mother that uh, is an analogy that Fulton Sheen uses to talk about Jesus. And so in, in this sense is that he became sin. And he became sin because he bore the sins of another man. He bore the sins of another person. He bore the sins of the human race. He bore the sins he took into his body. He felt the affliction of every single sin. He felt every single murder. He felt every single adultery. He felt every single abortion. He felt every single rape. He felt every single uh, sexual abuse. He felt every single lie. He felt every single sin. The suffering that he went through is more than we could ever imagine ever imagine. Bearing the sin of another person is when we feel the affliction of it. So when somebody is violated, when somebody is violently hit, they bore the sin of that other person. And Jesus bore our sin, meaning every single thing that you have done, every single thing that I have done, he felt it. He emotionally, physically, spiritually felt it. He bore our sin, and yet he's there in your sin, in my sin, saying, I'm here. I'm still on the cross. The lo- my love for you holds me on this cross. I will still bore, I will still bear your sin because my love is greater than your sin. Nothing can take my love away from you. And so 
just as Isaiah 53 said, that he, he bore our sin. He bore our iniquities. Same thing here. He became sin. He bore our sin. <laughs> that is radical. But God the Father did not pour out his wrath on Jesus for our sins. Jesus entered into fully and bore our sins as a sin offering of love to God the Father. His love is greater than your sin. Romans 8, 3 through 4. This is what uh, another, the last verse that we'll be talking about um, in this uh, belief on the Father pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not in accordance with the, to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so this is actually uh, very similar to what we talked about previously and in the previous episodes in, the, the, in Hebrews 10 about uh, a body you have prepared for me. And because Jesus took on our, our human flesh, he, had, he was in the image of sinful flesh, and he condemned sin in the flesh by bearing our sins, taking on our sins. And he fulfilled, and it was, and he fulfilled all justice because his love, and it's just now that we get to live in union with God and to live with him for all eternity and glory and perfect love and harmony and peace and uh, truth and love and being united fully with God and with each other. And because of God's love, that's the the gospel. That's the power of of the gospel is that God's love is greater than our sin, greater than death, greater than our suffering, that God would enter into it fully, into the likeness of sinful flesh, condemning sin in the flesh so that we can walk according to the Spirit. <laughs> so he fulfills everything so that we can have his Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, that transforms us into this into the image of the Son, so that whatever He is by nature, we are by grace, and so we live this life of fullness of joy, and in His presence, here and now, and for all of eternity. And so, with this, God Jesus atoned. He, and this is the only like uh, um, English word that is used in theology, and it's not in Scripture, but atonement, at one meant we became we became one with God through Jesus because he entered into our sinful flesh and redeemed us in our humanity. And the last thing I was just going to say is I, uh, you know, I referred to uh, this pastor who talked about who God the Father's like wrath and his, uh, you know, his wrath being poured out not on Jesus, but on our sins, which are on Jesus. No, Jesus entered fully into our sins, but God the Father did not pour out his wrath on, on either of them. He received the great love of the over of the eternal love, which was always there with, between the blessed trinities, uh, between the blessed trinity from all eternity, but even now in our human flesh, who uh, took on all of our sins. So, but uh, it's actually interesting when you look at the consuming sacrifices in the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament, there's uh, a few times where uh, where God would consume these sacrifices by fire. And so you would think that a lot of people would say like, and that's actually, it's been talked about before, like he, uh, Jesus was a burnt offering, like he became burnt with God's wrath or whatever. And, but God, when he consumed the, the sacrifices by fire, it was glory and love. <laughs> it was glory and love 
so there's three uh, places in the Old Testament that I'm going to refer to. Le- Leviticus 9.24, 1 Kings 18.38, and 2 Chronicles 7.1. So Leviticus 9.24, right before this, Aaron blesses the people. So this is the high priest blessing the people. And then Aaron and Moses went in, went into the tent of meeting. And then when they came out, they blessed the people. And it says, the glory of the Lord fell on all the people. And then in verse 24, it says, Then fire came forth from the, before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering upon the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So it was the glory of the Lord and his, him accepting their sacrifice out of love that he uh, this, this fire fell on this burnt offering and consumed it. First Kings 18.38. So this is the, the chapter where it's Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal. And saying like, hey, if your gods are more powerful than my God, then your gods, by your prayers or whatever you do, will consume your sacrifices. And so the 450 prophets of Baal are trying to convince their gods to consume this and all this stuff. And uh, Elijah, I forget who does this, but uh, his sacrifice even gets water poured on it. So it's like going to be even harder to consume. And he just prays. And this is what it says. Then the fire of the Lord... Uh, fell and consumed the burnt offering in the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so this burnt offering was <laughs> this confirmation that of the true God and this glory that brought all people to, to belief because this one true God with this one prophet, Elijah, was more strong or, you know, more powerful and uh, confirmed this, the truth um, against these 450 prophets of Baal. And then Second Chronicles 7.1, this is when Sol- uh, Solomon, King Solomon, David's son, dedicates the temple. So he just created the temple, now he's dedicating it. And it says in verse 1, When Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so this consuming fire of God is the glory of the Lord filling the temple, his presence uh, consuming um, whatever it might be, whether it's us, whether it's our offerings, whatever it might, may have been in the Old Testament, but it's out of a great love, not out of anger. <laughs> um, and so he receives it. And one of the last things I would say about Old Testament sacrifices is that they it wasn't just to kill something. It was primarily a gift, a gift of the greatest fruits that God has given us. And so God has given us his very son. And now Jesus offers himself as the ultimate infinite gift, as a divine person offering himself in humanity. And so it was primarily a gift in, it, in the Old Testament sacrifices. And Jesus as the fulfillment and the uplifting of all of that is the primary gift and his sacrifice. So uh, now we're going to transition to talking about the negative evidence, talking about all those things that are typically presented as here's the proof of these beliefs and uh, talking about those. And now we're going to move to the positive positive evidence in that the Father is always with Jesus. And so now we're going to talk about really three different aspects. So we're going to first talk about how our suffering unites us to Jesus. Um, the, then we're going to be talking about where ex, it is alluded to or explicitly said that the Father is with Jesus, even in his passion, in his cross, um, and, in his, and with, with him in love. And then we're going also to talk about how um, the Father is always with us because we are in Jesus. But as a summary of sorts, first of all, 
like what we just talked about, that we all just talked about, God did not kill Jesus. God did not pour out his wrath on Jesus. It was our sins that put Jesus on, on the cross there. And it was love that Jesus himself put himself there out of love for us. And so it's not the Father who killed Jesus. It was our sins. And Jesus is our substitute. So that's another cl- good clarification for, uh, as Catholics, we we have no problem talking about Jesus as our substitute because it was his obedience for our disobedience. And through his participation in our humanity, now we participate in his divinity. So he's divinized humanity through the eternal God becoming man. And he did take our place. He did take our place and did what we could never do, which is save us. We could offer ourselves, we could do whatever, but we are not divine. He has reconciled in his very person as God and man. He has done the ultimate sacrifice. (laughs) And so now us participating in that is what saves us. It's Christ's life in us. So like we mentioned before, this often time that this belief that God the Father either poured out his wrath or abandoned Jesus, this leads to very false views of God. And it very uh, oftentimes leads, not all the time, but oftentimes leads to bad theology and beliefs, such as the prosperity gospel. If you just believe God is going to make you prosper. You're going to have no health issues. I literally heard uh, just fairly recently that a person came in, um, I think they were in a Catholic setting, and they said, well, the you know this other church killed my sister. And he's like, oh, he's like, what do you mean? He was like, well, I, she had cancer. And they told her if she takes any medicine, she, has, she does not have faith. Jesus is the one who's going to heal you. <laughs> and so this this comes as false belief of this prosperity gospel that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and everything in between. But guess what? Every single one of us suffer. Every single one of us uh, dies. And the people who are poor in the New Testament and people who are suffering in the New Testament and people who are poor and suffering that have incredible faith throughout all these oppressed places like China and Africa and all these places where people are persecuted, just believe. <laughs> Those are the people with the great faith. Blessed are the poor. And so it's uh and and it becomes uh, also what this belief often leads to is everything is ex- ex- extrinsic to us so nothing is internal to us we're we're saved completely outside of us like jesus did the work and now it just gets applied to my life somehow and uh and i don't really have to there's no doesn't have to be like this interior transformation um as uh Martin Luther talked about how is that we're still like dung heap, but the snow covers us. That's Christ's righteousness covers us. And he basically like protects us. But no, St. Saint Paul, Jesus, the entire New Testament is very clear is that it's Christ's life in us. He took on humanity. He poured out the Holy Spirit. And now it's Christ's life in us. We are united to him in this profound beautiful way that the two would become one flesh (laughs) that's the radical union is that we become one spirit with christ we are infused with him we become co-laborers with him we become ambassadors with him and so this uh that's a entirely um bad theology that oftentimes is let let, uh began with this false this first belief of god the father pouring out his wrath and therefore everything is external or extrinsic to us and it also leads to an anti-sacramental view because if you don't need any of the sacraments that Jesus gave us because there there is no need for an internal transformation, all you need to do is just believe and it's Christ's righteousness that covers us, not actually interiorly uh, transforms us into him, into his image. Well, then you get 
you know, you don't have to have sacraments. And so this is the centerpiece of a mini, uh, it's a centerpiece of many false beliefs, but not all of them. But in short, it's Christ's life in us that we, he abides in us. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And so, um, and then about suffering as well. Jesus is the true lamb of God. What does that mean? He is the true lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That was a, when John Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God, that was the promised lamb that was given to Abraham when he was offering up his son, Isaac, that he said that God is going to give them a lamb and it was only fulfilled in Jesus. And he's also the Passover lamb because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, take this and eat of it. This is my body. And he becomes the lamb of the Passover meal. And St. Paul even refers to this in 1 Corinthians 5 is that our Paschal lamb has been, our Paschal sacrifice, our Paschal lamb has been sacrificed. Let us hold fast to the feast. And so he is the lamb. But guess what? Again, it's Christ's life in us. So St. Paul in Romans 8, 35 through 36 calls us all of us lambs because we are all called to share in his sufferings. So let me read Romans 8, 35 through 36. St. Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Which, by the way, these are all suffering things, so prosperity gospel doesn't make sense here. Verse 36, As it is written, For thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so, Romans 6 and Romans 8 is all about Christ's life in us, and we're baptized into Christ and walking in accord with the Holy Spirit. And yet, St. Paul also references the Old Testament where we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so what's his point is that in the midst of our suffering, we become like sheep, but we are not alone because we are the sheep and the one shepherd. We are the lambs and the one lamb of God. Because why? Because it's Christ's life in us. We all share in his sufferings. And this lamb of God in the gospels is very clear. So let's look at what Jesus actually told us. So Jesus tells us all about sufferings and persecutions and and we have to endure and we have to bear our cross and uh, people are going to hate you you're going to be persecuted you're going to you're going to be you know all of these things and then the christians not only are they suffering more than we could ever imagine uh saint paul being uh imprisoned being whipped being stoned being scourged being uh, all these things um and yet he rejoices why because it people rejoice rejoiced in the new testament of their sufferings united them to jesus and this is an entire episode again so like go back to suffering uh episode but in short jesus taught about suffering and that we'd be united to him uh we paul and peter are talk about suffering and how we must suffer for the sake of christ we have to bear our sufferings and take up our sufferings and and acts uh paul talks about how we must uh go through many trials and tribulations to enter into the kingdom and how people would rejoice they were rejoicing to suffer for the name of jesus and they were uh saint paul rejoices in his sufferings in colossians 124 and so when they were suffering and when we suffer we're not supposed to act as if god is pouring out his wrath on us or abandoning us no we find ourselves in that moment precisely in the love of God as that we were we are in union with Jesus and know that God is with us in the midst of our sufferings and persecutions. And we know, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, that love endures all things because fidelity to God by the grace of Jesus, by loving God and neighbor and even our own enemy, Jesus says, is precisely in the midst of horrible sufferings and in the midst of horrible trials and tribulations is that we are united to Jesus in a more profound way and truly live 
in the freedom that he's called us to, and that's the glory of God. And even in the Gospel of John, it refers to, uh, and it alludes to the crucifixion of Jesus being the glory <laughs> of Jesus. And let me just read a couple verses. So this is John 3, thir- verses 13 through 15. It says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so Jesus here is alluding to him being lifted up on the cross, just as the Old Testament, when these serpents were actually biting and killing people, would then become this thing to look at from the command of God to Moses that when they lifted up, people would look at the serpent and that it would actually save them. So this almost like it was a curse and now people are being saved through through it because God is using it for his purposes. And it's the same thing here that Jesus is alluding to and he refers to it actually again in John chapter 12 verses 31 through 32 where Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And so Jesus is drawing all men to himself. Why and how? Well, first thing that's pretty cool, Dr. Brant Petrie, shout out to you as always, is the prophets referred to Jerusalem, this city, would be the place of all men being drawn there and worshiping God. And yet Jesus refers to himself as the true place, the true temple, repeatedly, and the true temple is his body, is the the place that all men will really be drawn there and will be the true dwelling place of God and will uh, be truly the place where all people come to worship the one true God. And it's here, just as, again, he's being lifted up like the serpent was in, in the desert. Here, Jesus, in the desert of the world, this barrenness, he enters into and takes on the curse of sin and death, and he robs Satan, who is the ruler of this world, he, as he says in John 12, 31. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, how is he going to be cast out? Because he's just referred to him as the ruler of this world. Well, his rule is sin and death. And so Jesus enters into and takes on to the curse of sin and death to rob Satan of it. <laughs> and so Jesus, in, his, in lifting, being lifted up, uh, saves all of us. And so now let's transition to uh, scripture verses where Jesus is very clear that the Father is always with him, or there's other places where the Father is literally with him and we, we hear his voice, such as Jesus' baptism. So Jesus at his baptism points to the baptism of his death and resurrection. And this is where also the Trinity manifests. So Jesus comes up from the water. The Father speaks over his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. So we see here in the in baptism, the Trinity, and yet his baptism points to his death and resurrection. He refers to it, to James and John, I believe, as his baptism, his baptism of suffering, his the chalice that he drinks of suffering. And then we share in that through baptism in the Eucharist, as St. Paul talks about in Romans 6, that we are baptized into his death and raised to him in new life. And so Jesus' baptism is pointing to his death and at his baptism is a clear manifestation of the Trinity. And it's going to be the same thing at the cross. It's going to be here that Jesus in his baptism of his passion and death is going to be where the Trinity is manifested and his love poured out. And so, and another second thing is when Jesus died, it was his wedding day. 
it was his wedding day, the first miracle. We talked about this uh, in previous uh, episodes, but um, Jesus, his very first miracle was at the wedding of Cana, and it says that he re- he it was this was the first of his miracles where so he revealed his glory, and he thought of and what what did he say to Mary, that his hour has not yet come to pour out this to transform this new wine this new wine and yet and if said it referred and this hour would be the hour of his death the hour of his death and so when he was at this wedding he thought of his wedding and so and of course his father is there why because in the jewish context was that the father would be the would be the person who prepares a place for his son and his son's bride. And what does Jesus say oftentimes? That the Father has prepared a place for you, and I'm going to take you there to, uh, and I will take you there to myself. And so, and so that where I am, you may be. And so Jesus here is using Jewish wedding language to explain that, and this is why he says the, the Father, no one knows the time except the Father. Why? Because in the Jewish weddings, the Father would set the time of when the house would be prepared and when the, his son can receive the bride. And so Jesus is referring to the Father as the one who prepares a place. The Father is the one who is there at the wedding and is the one throwing the feast and is the one setting the time. And so the Father is preparing this beautiful wedding banquet and feast. So of course he's there when he's, Jesus dies at the cross because it's his, the wedding day of, of the son and his bride. Even further though. Let's go to some where Jesus explicitly talks about the Father being with him. So first, let's go to John chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. Jesus said to them, Truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows all, him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown him, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And then John eight twenty eight through 30 Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak thus as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him. So the Father is always with him. He is never alone. And then also listen to this next beautiful verse. Uh, Jesus is speaking and the Father speaks back. John twelve twenty three through 28. Jesus says, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the, to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Whoo, baby! Jesus is going to be glorified and the Father speaks and is always with him and he's going to glorify the Father's name and the Father's going to glorify the Son. 
And there's many more verses in John 14 through 17, which I'm going to hit on in, in just a minute. But for, and we're going to, it's going to be a nice transition because in John 14 through 17, it talks about how the Father is with Jesus, but then also the Father being with us because we are in Jesus. <laughs> and so it's a good transition to talk about that God the Father is always with us because we are in Jesus. But let's finish off on the Father was with Jesus explicitly. Luke 22, uh, verses 52 through 53. This is when Judas betrays uh, Jesus and they come in and take and take a hold and arrest Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. This is what it says in verse 52 through 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the, of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so whose hour is it that is the power of darkness that Jesus enters into sin and death? Our power of darkness. <laughs> this is our hour. And then, uh, and it's not the Father's. And the parallel passage to this is in Matthew 26, verse 53. Again, this is Jesus is betrayed. And, uh, and then they fight really quick. And then Peter cuts off this uh, servant of the high priest's ear. And then Jesus heals it and then says this in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So Jesus is saying, the father is with me and I could do anything. He's going to send me anything because he's my father. He will give me anything. And yet, but I came to accomplish this, to lay down my life for even a greater purpose and uh, to enter into this hour of darkness of humanity and this power of, of Satan which is sin and death. He's going to enter into it fully to rip its power out from him. And then lastly, Jesus is on the cross. His seven last words, many of them are spoken to the Father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Psalm 22, what we talked about earlier. Into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. So these words spoken by Jesus does not make any sense if he thinks the Father is not with him or the Father is punishing him. No, the Father is with him in love. He is always with him. So now, as a good transition, I'm going to read uh, several verses in uh, John 14 through chapter chapter 14 through 17, where it's very clear that Jesus is saying at the Last Supper, right before his passion and death, his death, is that the Father is with him, the Father is in him, and then us and Jesus, the Father is with us and um, all of those good things. So it's a good transition between the Father is with Jesus and the Father is with us. John 14, 3. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I, may, I am, you may be also. Verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus says, responding to the apostle Philip, when Philip just asked him, like, just show us the Father. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. 
So the Father is always with him. Verse 13 of chapter 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Verse, verse 21. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus says, If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 26, Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then lastly, in chapter 14, verse 31, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And what's so beautiful about that verse right there is when Jesus says that the Father has commanded me, the Greek word there for commanded can also be translated to enjoin. That is a unified joining and a mission to do it together. So the Father and Jesus are in this together. And now let's go to John chapter 15, verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then in chapter 16, verse starting in verse 15, we're going to read what Jesus says here about the Father. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come from the Father. And then in verse 32, Jesus says, The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, every man to his home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So right in the place that Jesus says that people are going to abandon him, he says, the Father is not abandoning me. He is always with me. And now let's hop into John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then uh, 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. And then verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then, staying in that same chapter, chapter 17, and verse uh, 21, Jesus says, That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then, lastly, in chapter uh, 17, Verses 23 through 26, Jesus ends the high priestly prayer by saying, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to behold my glory, which you have given me in your love for me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I know, have known you. And these know, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so the mission of the Blessed Trinity is love poured out on humanity.
And then just think of the parables of Jesus, how he talks about how the father runs to his child and the prodigal son. The father, he says, the father gives the Holy Spirit. The father delights to give the kingdom. The father gives the greatest gifts. All of these things that Jesus has as these beautiful images of the father is the, the love of the father. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall not be condemned but be saved and shall not perish. And that he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world. And a beautiful uh, parallel to this is 1 John four eighteen. So the same author but in a letter. He says this in uh, verse 18 of chapter, chapter 4. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and he who fears is not perfected in love. <laughs> and so, and this is entire chapter, this chapter four is all about God's love for us. So God loves us so much. And Romans 8, 1 through 2, St. Paul says, There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And so, us being united to Christ, there is no condemnation. And Jesus the Father doesn't save us from the... The, the, Jesus doesn't save us from the Father. Jesus saves us from Satan, sin, and death and brings us into the communion of love of the Father. And being in that communion with the love of the Father and the Blessed Trinity, we are saved from the condemnation of the evil one. God does not condemn. God does not accuse. That is all the evil one's work. Jesus says that he is, an, he calls him the accuser. And Second Thessalonians 3.3, 3, St. Paul says that the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And so when our, as Colossians also says, is that our life is with Christ and hidden in God, is that we are protected from the evil one, the fiery, the, 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 the fiery darts of the evil one, the lies that he does, the temptations that he, that he offers. It's in this communion that we are brought into communion with uh, the love of God. And so when we are in Jesus again, that the Father does not speak condemnation because we are in the Blessed Trinity. We are in love itself. And so there is no condemnation. And then uh, 2 Corinthians verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3-4, through St. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in, our, in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the com- comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So St. Paul, talking about sufferings and the God of mercies and the Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us, it's because we are in Jesus, we are in the Blessed Trinity, that even in the midst of our horrible sufferings that St. Paul and others have went through, and what we go through too, we share in those sufferings, is not as on a, on a severe scale as St. Paul did, but we too get to say that God the Father comforts us right in the midst of those trials. And First Peter uh, 4.8, St. Peter says, Love covers a multitude of sins. And he's talking about how we love each other. But where does he get that idea? Jesus, the ultimate love, covers a multitude of sins. And St. Paul, again, we cry out, Abba, Father, this intimacy with the Father. We talk to the Father. We love the Father. The Father gives. He transferred. The Father is the one who transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He delights to give us the kingdom. He gives every good gift. He is always there. And so it's the Father that loves. And then we're going to end this episode on just reading God's love for us in Jesus. The God, God is always with us. God loves us so much. This is uh, Ephesians 1. 
verses 3 through 5. And if you just open your hands, close your eyes, this is such a beautiful prayer. This is how much God the Father loves you. In Jesus, the Father pours out his love upon you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before him. He destined you in love to be his son, his daughter, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on you in the Beloved. And so you who are in the Beloved, which is the Son, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, when you are in him, you are the Father's child. You are the one who he gives the kingdom. You are the one that he pours out every single spiritual blessing. You are the one who he pours out his love upon, who speaks over with love. He loves you so much. And he has called us eternally into union with him, this beautiful intimacy with the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so God did not pour out his wrath on Jesus. God did not abandon Jesus. God does not abandon you. God does not pour out his wrath on you. You are united to Christ in your sufferings. And the same love that the Father has for Jesus, he has for you. And so just an invitation to turn to God the Father specifically. And we have no idea the incredible Father that God is. He is the one that all fatherhood flows from. And yet, in this world, sometimes we have this broken image of fatherhood. And even here, I can see the uh, the thought of, well, Jesus had to save us from the Father. And no, Jesus saves us to bring us to the Father so that we would know what perfect fatherhood looks like. Turn to your Father who loves you so much, who's tender, sweet, loving, and loves to encourage his children, loves to speak over new life, and speaks peace over his children. Turn to him and ask him, Father, what do you think of me? And let him just speak love over you today. The Father is so good. He was there in it all with Jesus, and he's here right now in it all with you, no matter what. Thank you.